Good morning, dear friends. Today is the 4th of May in the year 2012. We are in the Assembly of Stars Meditation Hall. Four Noble Truths begin with ill-being, with suffering, because suffering is connected to happiness. Understanding suffering is essential to be able to understand happiness. So that's why Buddha Shakyamuni named ill-being as the first Noble Truth. get in touch with suffering, with ill-being, we listen deeply to that ill-being and then we can discover how that ill-being came to be there, how it was established. There's a cause, roots, So the second noble truth is the nature of ill-being, the roots of ill-being, or we say sometimes the path that has led to the ill-being or leads to ill-being. The path that leads to ill-being And we can also describe the second truth in terms of food. We have already learned. The Buddha said nothing can survive without food. And that's true with ill-being. It's because we continue to feed ill-being and that's why it's still around. We need to look and identify the source of ill-being, and after that we can cut that source of food, and the ill-being will have to die. So the second truth can be described as a kind of path, also as a a way of consuming. We are a very consumptive society. We have to be very careful. Ill-being is there. It's because we don't know how to consume properly. We are what we consume. The third truth is hope. It's the path no, it's the cessation of ill-being. It means the transformation of the ill-being. 
transformation and the cessation of ill-being may be described as well-being. It's the same thing. Well-being. If ill-being is described as darkness, when darkness disappears, light is what is there. So the absence of darkness means the presence of light. So the same is true with ill-being and well-being. If there's no more ill-being, something else is there. It's called well-being. Well-being also has to be fed in order to be there. So we should look into well-being and find out what kinds of food we need to establish well-being. So we can speak of the fourth truth in terms of food. The consumption, the food that leads to well-being. Classically, we call it the path leading to the cessation of ill-being. It means the path leading to well-being. The Four Noble Truths are very simple. And when we look deeply into one truth, we see the other three truths. That's why the truths are described as noble, because with the eye of interbeing, when we look at one of the four truths, we see all the other three. That's the interbeing of the truths. We've also spoken of the eight elements of the path leading to well-being. We began with right view. The inside of interbeing. And before right view, we had right concentration. Concentration is a part of meditation. Meditation gives rise to insight. Today we will speak quite a bit about concentration. And before concentration, there's right mindfulness. We could start the eight with right mindfulness, which carries within it right concentration. And mindfulness and concentration carry right view. It's logical. And after right view, we can practice right thinking. The 
right speech, right action, and then we have right livelihood, and then right diligence, also known as right effort. We spent about an hour talking about right diligence. You remember? Watering, the selective watering. We water the good seeds. So this is the path leading to well-being. We, we can start at right mindfulness or at any other place in the circle of eight elements. This is a description that is simple and also deep of the path leading to well-being. If we consume in terms of the path, according to this path, we will create well-being. We will transform ill-being. So the second truth may be described as the path, a path, and the fourth is also a path. The fourth is the noble Eightfold Path. This path is noble because there's holiness in the elements that compose the Eightfold Path. There's holiness in right mindfulness, in concentration, in insight too. And we possess that nature of holiness in us. And when we practice the five mindfulness trainings, there is the element of holiness in us that helps us to transform ill-being and be able to establish well-being. So the path leading to well-being is qualified as a noble path. The other path leading to ill-being is also a path, but we cannot qualify that as noble. Maybe we should call that the ignoble path. We have as well, we've also spoken about the exercises of mindful breathing. So we're going to review all of that. The first breathing exercise is to be with our in-breath and our out-breath, being with the breath. Identifying your in-breath, identifying your out-breath,
And every time we bring our attention to our in-breath and our out-breath, we let go of everything else. We're free right away. The past, the future, our projects, we're free. And the second exercise, we follow. It's following our in-breath and our out-breath. The whole length of our in-breath and out-breath. Breathing in, I follow my in-breath all the way from the beginning to the end. I'm truly concentrated. And this exercise will bring you more concentration and more pleasure in breathing. And more freedom as well. The third exercise... Recognizing our body. Breathing in, I know my body is here. <coughs> Getting in touch with our physical body is very good to do. And you are fortunate to have the chance to take care of your body the brothers and the sisters in Plum Village. They have downloaded the sound of the bell to their computer so that every 15 minutes the sound of the bell is heard. We stop working. We breathe in and out. We come back to our body and we smile. Just one or two minutes can do us a lot of good. Breathing in, I'm aware of my body. Breathing out, I smile to my body. The fourth exercise. Releasing tension. Releasing tension in the body. Breathing in, I relax. I let go. Of stress and tension from my body. And then in the fifth exercise, we enter into the realm of the feelings. Our body and mind are unified, and that allows us to get in touch with the wonders of life that are in us and around us. So we can very well generate a feeling of joy. To be a practitioner means to be able to generate a feeling of joy at any time any place. 
if you're really there with your body and mind united, you can get in touch with the conditions of happiness that are available in the present moment. What are we waiting for to be happy? And we can very well generate a feeling of joy, bringing a feeling of joy. That's the fifth exercise. The sixth exercise is bringing a feeling of happiness. In Buddhism, we make a slight distinction between joy and happiness. Someone who's walking in the desert and is thirsty but there's no water available, all of a sudden he realizes there's an oasis ahead. He will be able to drink soon, in half an hour. So the feeling that he experiences in that moment is the sensation, the feeling of joy. And then when he arrives to the oasis, He kneels down to the water and starts drinking. That's the happiness. So joy and happiness are possible in the present moment with mindfulness, with concentration. And this is the food that we need. We need to produce joy. We need to produce happiness for our consumption. As a practitioner, we have the power to produce joy and happiness for ourselves and for others. Seventh, Exercise is recognizing a painful feeling. When a painful feeling manifests, we should be there for it. We shouldn't suppress or repress that feeling. Hello, my little pain. I know you're there. I'm going to take good care of you. Recognizing the pain just as it is, simple, bare recognition of the pain. And the eighth exercise is to be able to embrace and calm the pain, to get relief, calming, the pain. The text 
the Anapanasati Sutra, the Sutra on the full awareness of breathing. is already 2,600 years old. And it's very methodical, very scientific. First of all, we begin with the body, and then we move to the realm of the feelings. First we take care of our body, and then of our feelings. As practitioners, we have to be able to recognize pain and to calm pain through the practice of mindful breathing, through walking, sitting, relaxation, etc. We have to be able to master this. We should learn that in our Sangha. And the Dharma teachers should master the methods to be able to share them with other members of the Sangha, we should always seek to improve our practice. Our spiritual body should be growing every day. And now we go into the realm of the mind. So the first four exercises are for taking care of our body. The second set of four exercises is for taking care of our feelings. And the next four exercises are for taking care of our mind. Our mind is a river made up of drops. It's made up of mental formations. You have you've been given a handout with the list of all the mental formations. Every time a mental formation manifests from the store consciousness up in the mind consciousness, we should be capable of recognizing that and calling it by its true name. If it's anger, we need to be able to say, that's anger. Simple recognition of each mental formation that manifests. Identifying or recognizing. This is the ninth exercise. Identifying or recognizing mental formation. Mental formations are like drops of water and the mind is like the river. They are one thing. So you're there, sitting on the bank of the river of your mental formations, and you look, you identify each mental formation as it's born, and as it 
withdraws, fades away. The tenth exercise is for gladdening the mind. We should not allow our mind to be invaded, taken over by negative mental formations like anger, despair. The landscape of our mind will not be beautiful. So gladdening the mind means doing everything we can to invite the good seeds to manifest in our mind consciousness to bring us joy. And we have already learned about this through the practice of selective watering, changing the CD. This has to do with right diligence. So mindful breathing is also for making the landscape of the mind joyful, pleasant, through the practice of intelligent watering. It means creating happiness for ourselves and for the other person. The eleventh exercise is concentrating the mind. Because when we recognize a painful feeling and we try to embrace that feeling skillfully, we can calm it. We can bring a relief, but that's not enough. We can go further. With concentration, we can go into the nature of the pain, of the suffering, in order to be able to understand. And that understanding will liberate us from the pain, from the suffering. Because this concentration will bring about a deep understanding, a right view. And that deep understanding will liberate us from pain. And here we are speaking of liberation rather than of salvation. Salvation through wisdom, not through grace. But if you are from a Christian background, you can understand grace, you can understand wisdom 
insight as a kind of grace. So understanding allows us to make a breakthrough, a breakthrough into the nature of the pain so that right view, the view of interbeing can manifest and with that wisdom, with that awakening, we will be able to liberate ourselves concentrating the mind and then liberating the mind. So these are the 11th and 12th exercises. So these are the four exercises for taking care of our mind. First of all, recognizing mental formations, watering the good seeds to bring joy and happiness, then concentrating on the pain. In order to have access to the knowing that liberates us. And then the last four of the 16 exercises are focused on the practice of concentration. In Buddhism, there are several kinds of concentration practices. It is concentration that liberates you. It's not a notion that's going to do that. It's not an intellectual knowledge that will do it. We can very well accept the truth of impermanence, of interbeing, but if it's just the intellect that accepts, the rest of our being has not accepted it. We know the other person is impermanent, he's going to die one day, but we continue to behave as if that person is going to be there forever and forever. So the idea of impermanence doesn't help us that much. We need the concentration on impermanence. We need to maintain this concentration. We need to keep it alive to be able to access the insight. The notion of impermanence, it can help a little. The notion of interbeing can help a little. The notion of no birth and no death can help a little bit but it's not enough. We have to keep this insight alive in our daily life. Every time you look at something like a cloud or an orange tree, a glass of water, we have to see the impermanent nature. We have to see the interbeing nature in the cloud in the glass of water, and so on. We have to keep that concentration alive. And you don't need to stay in just the sitting position to do that. When you drive your car, you can also concentrate 
what's going on inside you and around you is impermanent and interconnected. So you're in touch with interbeing, with impermanence, with non-self. The 13th exercise offers us the concentration that we call impermanence, contemplating impermanence. Contemplating impermanence as a concentration. Suppose I'm angry with my beloved. I want to say something to punish that person. <coughs> the inside of impermanence can help me so that instead of punishing that person, instead of doing or saying something to make him or her unhappy, I see that I think by making that person unhappy, I will get a relief. It's stupid, but a lot of people think like that. So the next time you're angry with him or her, try this method. Close your eyes, breathe in, and visualize the one you love. What will he or she be 300 years from now? Breathing in, I see myself 300 years from now. What will I be? Ash? It just takes a few seconds to touch the nature of impermanence as a concentration, not the idea. And if you touch the impermanence of your beloved, you will cherish that person's presence. How silly of me. This person is still here alive in front of me, and I'm getting so angry. That's so dumb. You can do that in two or three seconds, the concentration on impermanence. And when you open your eyes back up, all you want to do is take that person in your arms and do hugging meditation. Breathing in, I know my beloved is still alive. Breathing out, I'm very happy. So the 13th exercise is for contemplating impermanence. The 14th is the contemplation of of non-craving, of not thirst, 
desire. There are many objects of desire, like fame, power, political or otherwise. like wealth, money, sensual pleasure. So when we run after these objects of desire, we lose ourselves. So here we look directly into the object of our desire to be able to see into its nature And we realize, we recognize that our manas is always seeking pleasure, but it is oblivious to the dangers of pleasure-seeking, just like the fish at the moment the fish wants to bite. she realizes that there's a hook inside that bait and she's free. So when we contemplate the object of our desire and we see the danger in running after it, we can be free of that object of desire. We know that happiness is possible with understanding, love, compassion. And many people have suffered enormously because they run after these objects of desire. The fifteenth exercise is the contemplation of refreshment, cooling. There's the fire of desire, the fire of anger, the fire of illusion, the flame of desire burning us day and night, the afflictions. We want to extinguish that fire that's burning us. The word nirvana means extinction of the fire, putting out the fire, and extinguishing the flames. The word nirvana may be translated as coolness, extinguishing, cooling down. In the morning, in the countryside, we use branches and straw for cooking over the fire. And when the time comes and we can touch the fireplace and it's cool, the fire has gone out, we don't risk burning our fingers, that's when they used that word. So 
Nirvana was actually a, a word of ordinary country people. It meant the putting out of the fire. So the fire here, in the spiritual world, we're talking about the fire of afflictions, anger, despair, jealousy. These are the flames that burn us all the time. So nirvana is putting out, extinguishing the fire, cooling the flames. That is the true meaning of the word nirvana. Nirvana isn't a place, a country. Nirvana is the state of extinction, of putting out the fire of suffering that burns us. So the 15th exercise is contemplating nirvana, contemplating extinct, extinction of the flames, cooling. The 16th and final exercise of mindful breathing Contemplating letting go. Letting go. Letting go here means letting go of notions, notions like birth, death, being, non-being, same, difference, coming, going, etc. It means discrimination. It's because of the fact that we can let go of those notions that we can have access to right view, the inside of interbeing. That is the basic element for our liberation. Because those notions make us unhappy and it creates a lot of suffering, these notions like birth and death, etc. So we always come back to right view. The other day, we already were reflecting on time as a straight line. That we can draw from left to right. We were supposing there's one point on the line that we can call birth. And because birth is there, Something else has to be there, that's death. And in our way of thinking, which is not right thinking, we think that there are birth and death, and birth and death bring about the ideas of being and non-being. I begin to be here at the point of birth. 
and I continue to be until I get to that point D, death, then I stop being and I pass into non-being. Before being born, I also belonged to non-being. This is our way of thinking. There is this truth that we call conventional truth because all of us need to have a birth certificate. This is to certify that such and such person was born at such and such time, such and such day. We need to make use of that level of truth, but there's a deeper truth also. Not the conventional truth, and that is the absolute truth, the ultimate truth. When we look deeply, we can touch the ultimate truth, and in that truth there is no birth, there is no death. Those are just appearances. When we say birth, we think something comes from non-being and passes into being, and it's going to be there for some time, and then later it will pass back into non-being. That's our way of thinking. It's correct in terms of the conventional truth, but it is not correct from the point of view of the ultimate truth. Even scientists have been able to touch this ultimate truth. That's why the French scientist Lavoisier said, nothing is created, nothing is lost. There is no birth, there is no death. But Lavoisier didn't practice didn't practice concentration. He wasn't able to maintain, to preserve that insight in daily life. And that's why when he was executed by guillotine, I think he suffered. So that declaration was illuminating, but as he wasn't able to maintain concentration on it throughout the day, he also suffered at the time of his death. When he can say, intellectually, nothing dies. It's impossible for a cloud to die. A cloud cannot go from being to not being. So a notion, a declaration, these things are not enough. Scientists have found the truth. But having found the truth, they've only been able to apply it to technology and not into their daily life, into a spiritual life. So scientists also need to put into practice what they have discovered. They need to apply it into their relationships, and so on. We will have a 21-day retreat in June for science scientists. We will be discussing and practicing together 
this concentration. So a notion, even if it's a correct notion that expresses right view, that notion is not enough to save us. We need to have the concentration. We have to live insight in every day in order to be free of fear, the fear of non-being. Because it's impossible for us to die just like a cloud. There is a path that leads us from conventional truth to ultimate truth. In the ultimate truth, we speak of non-birth, no birth and no death. And we can be liberated from the ideas of birth and death. It's like with the ideas of left and right. Left and right inter-are. Because the right is there, only because of that that the left can be there. Because of the existence of the left, that's how the right can exist. Everything inter-is. Suffering and happiness are also in interbeing, the same with life and death. There is no life without death. There is no death without life. And we can begin with that. For example, somebody wants to take the left side of this piece of paper and take it to Bordeaux. And the right side is going to stay here. We're going to take it to Marseille. It's not possible. The left and the right have to be together. And happiness always goes along with suffering. And birth always goes with death. When biologists look into the body, they know that birth and death are happening in every moment. In every second, cells in my body are dying and other cells are being born. The birth of cells and the death of cells takes place moment to moment. That's the truth. We think that right now is just life and death is something that happens much later. That's not true. We experience death in every moment. There are thousands of cells dying in every moment. But we don't have enough time to organize a funeral for all those deaths. We don't have enough time for that. 
There are thousands of cells being birth, being born all the time. We don't have time to celebrate all those births. So life and death are both happening right now. Birth and death. Without birth, there's no death. Without death, there's no birth. Both of them, they're just two aspects of one thing. Where there is death, there is birth. The death of a cloud means the birth of the rain, right? Why be afraid? We're afraid. We shouldn't be afraid because we never can die. Maybe it's an opportunity to be reborn more beautifully. We should meditate on this. We should keep this concentration alive every day, and we can smile at death. Death is as beautiful as life because it is part of life. Smiling to life and smiling to death is possible for a practitioner. She sees that life, that birth and death are just notions and that the ultimate reality is that there is no birth and there's no death. That is touching nirvana. That is releasing notions of birth and death, very important to do. That's the 16th exercise, letting go. Letting go of what? Of notions. First of all, the notion of birth and death. When the notions of birth and death are removed, the notions of being and non-being are removed at the same time. Because they are a function of the other notions. Because we have defined birth as the passage from non-being into being. So if we eliminate, if we remove that notion of birth, then that boundary between non-being and being disappears. Being and non-being are just notions. The ultimate truth transcends the ideas of being and non-being. That's why it's not good to say that God is the ground of being. If God is the ground of being, who will be the ground of non-being? God is greater than being. Right? So if we are caught in the notions of being and non-being, then we cannot really get in touch with God, with the ultimate. God is free of these notions of being and non-being, beginning and ending. So we remove, we let go of the notions of birth and death and also the notions of being and non-being.
in this light, being and non-being, to be or not to be, that is no longer the question. So we're free from the idea that we've come into being from non-being. We can also be free of the notion of coming or going. Let's do this meditation together on being and non-being. Right now I'm thinking of a flame. And I can already start talking to the flame. Do you think the flame belongs to non-being right now? No, it is already there in the conditions. The conditions have not been sufficient for the flame to manifest. We know that the flame is hiding in this box of matches. We can say, my dear little flame, we know you are there. Please manifest for us. We can talk to the flame. It doesn't belong to the realm of non-being. And we also know the flame is hiding outside the box because oxygen is essential for it to appear, right? Without oxygen, the flame will not be able to manifest. It needs conditions to be able to manifest, just like a flower or all of us. So we may say, my dear little flame, we know you are here somewhere in the box and outside the box. Why don't you manifest for us? And then we can hear the reply, Dear Thai, Dear Sangha. It's true, I'm here. I don't belong to being or non-being. I am already in the conditions. The conditions are sufficient, except you just need to bring one final condition and then I will manifest, and that's a movement of your fingers. So we're going to bring in the final condition so that this flame can manifest.
And the flame knows that it's not coming from the realm of non-being, because being and non-being are nothing but notions. So the word manifestation is much more accurate, is much better than the word birth. Before the manifestation and after the manifestation, And here's the end of the manifestation. <laughs> so we see that even the flame is free of notions like birth and death. It's free of being and not being. And when we ask the flame, dear little flame, where have you come from? What, where did you originate? That's a philosophical question. Where did the universe come from? Where did the cosmos come from? Where did I come from? The response is clear. Dear Thai, dear Sangha, I haven't come from anywhere. There is no coming. I didn't come from the south, or the north, the east or the west, east or the west. That's true. When the conditions are sufficient, I manifest, that's all. So I'm free of coming. I have not passed from non-being into being. I just manifest when the conditions are sufficient. Dear little flame, where did you go? Where have you gone now? Dear Thai, dear Sangha, I have not gone anywhere. I haven't gone to the south or to the north, to the east or the west. When conditions are no longer sufficient, I stop my manifestation to manifest again later on. And that's true. There is no coming. There is no going. The nature of the flame is non-local. Non-locality is an expression used in modern science. So with this, we can remove the notions of coming and going. And now there's another pair. Another pair of notions. Sameness. and otherness, difference, identification, and differentiation. 
we will invite that flame to manifest again because we need it for our meditation. This is not a birth, it's a manifestation. Darling, you are not a creation. You are a wonderful manifestation. And from this flame, we can generate a second flame. And we can ask this flame, the second one, my dear little flame, are you the same flame as the first one? Or are you a different flame? That's a very good question. You may have kept photos of yourself when you were from when you were five years old. If you look at that photo, you can ask the five year old child, Am I the same as you or am I a different person? I'm so different from the way you were in size, in feeling, in perceptions, in mental formations. Am I exactly the same person as you or am I a different person? There's a big difference between the five-year-old child and the person you are today. The answer is exactly the same. I am not the same person as that child. I've changed a lot. But I am not an entirely different person either. There is continuation. There is no differentiation. When I look into my body, I see that I am the continuation of my dad. I can talk to my dad, Dad, I'm here, and you're still here with me. We are a stream, and you're still here in me. So between father and son, there is this truth. The son is not exactly the father, but he's not an entirely different person, because the son is in the father, and the father is in the son. If you are a Christian, you may have learned interbeing in the Gospel. In John, it is said, one day you will see that I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. That's interbeing. So when the cloud looked down at the rain, that was transformed from the cloud, 
one part of a cloud may transform into rain, and the remaining part of the cloud can look at the rain and recognize itself. Is the cloud the same as the rain, or is the cloud something completely different? No. They're not the same thing, and they're not entirely different. That's the truth. If we can release these kinds of notions, then we're free. We're free of fear. Fear of being, fear of not being. A person who commits suicide is afraid of being. The person who fears death is afraid of non-being. But reality transcends both being and not being. That is letting go. We need to let go of all these notions that are the basis of our fear, our suffering, our discrimination. That is the deep meditation of Buddhism. So when we look into our body, we see that this body is not everything. It's not all that we are. Jean-Paul Sartre said, man is the sum of his acts. We have produced thinking, speech, and physical actions. All those things are still there. They are our continuation. This body is a minimal part of me, of you. If you think that I am this body, period, you're wrong. So we need to train ourselves to look into ourselves and see ourselves in the cosmos. We see ourselves in our children. We see ourselves in everything we do. Because all the thoughts that you have produced bear your signature. Everything you say, everything you have said carries your signature. That's your continuation. It will reappear in the future as the present. Nothing is lost. So when we look into our body, we say, this body isn't everything. It's just a small part. Just like with the tea, I'm pouring this boiling water into the tea leaves, into the teapot. And then when I pour the tea from the teapot into the cup and the teapot no longer has tea, we can say that the tea is still in the teapot, but that's not right. Most of the tea has gone into the cup and then into my body, and now it's a Dharma talk. So we shouldn't think that the tea is all in the teapot. It's in me and it's in you. Because the Dharma is the continuation of that tea. Your knowledge of the Dharma and your joy are also a continuation of this tea. So with the wisdom 
of non-appearance. We see ourselves everywhere in the past, in the present, and in the future. There is a concentration practice that is available in every school of Buddhism. There are dozens of methods of concentration, but there are three kinds of concentration that are found in every school of Buddhism. They are called the Three Doors of Liberation. The first door is emptiness. It means the absence of a separate existence. We have already meditated on this with the flower. We said the flower is full of everything in the cosmos. Everything is in the flower. The entire cosmos has conspired to produce this flower. The flower is full of everything except one thing, separate existence. The flower is full of the cosmos, but it is empty of a separate existence. A flower cannot exist by itself. It has to coexist with everything else in the cosmos. Its nature is the nature of interbeing. So, the flower is full but also empty, full of everything, empty of a me, a separate self, separate existence. We are flowers. We contain the cosmos. We are all. We are everything. But we have no separate existence. We have no separate self. We are a stream, a current. We are a continuation. When we look deeply into ourselves, we see our ancestors, parents, culture, everything. But there's no separate existence. That is the vision, the inside of non-self. That's the part that Lavoisier didn't say. He said, no birth, no death, everything transforms, everything is impermanent. So I want to add a last part to that. Nothing has a separate existence. Everything has to interbe with everything else. That's emptiness. Contemplation on emptiness can liberate us. The second door of liberation is the contemplation of signlessness. Signlessness.
When we look at the rain, we know the rain is not a cloud, it's not in the form of a cloud, but the rain is a continuation of the cloud. We can see the cloud in the rain. That is the insight, the concentration of signlessness. We don't need a sign, an appearance to be able to recognize something being there. I wrote a calligraphy that says, smile to the cloud in your tea. The tea doesn't have the sign, the appearance of a cloud, but the cloud is there. So if we can look with the understanding of signlessness, we're no longer afraid because nothing is created and nothing is lost, then you're well established in nirvana. No birth, no death. No being, no non-being. When a wave realizes that she is water, she loses all fear. The wave is not afraid anymore of beginning, ending, rising, falling, being or non-being, because she knows she's already water. She doesn't have to go running to look for water because she is water right now. So we don't run around looking for nirvana because our true nature is the nature of no birth, no death, no being and no non-being. We are well established in well-being, in nirvana, in freedom from pain and afflictions. The third door of liberation is aimlessness. Aimlessness. Because the wave has realized that she's water right now in the present moment, that's why she doesn't have to go seeking after water. The same is true with us. We don't need to go looking for the kingdom of God. We don't need to go looking for nirvana. Everything is already right here. Happiness is possible here and now. We don't need to keep seeking. That's the door of aimlessness. It lets us stop and realize here and now. We have to stop the running. 
You are already what you want to become. Everything is here. If you want mindfulness, if you want awakening, if you want happiness and joy, those things are possible in this moment. With mindfulness, with concentration, we make everything possible in the present moment. We don't need to run anymore. We've been running our whole life. And it's only with this door that we can truly stop. Stopping is a fantastic thing. We have peace. We don't seek anymore. In the time of the Buddha, there was a lay practitioner named Anattapindika. He had a family, and they had a lot of happiness in the practice. They served the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Anathapindika was a businessman. He was very rich. He had a good heart. He helped the poor, the poor people in his area. Everybody around Shravasti loved him. That's why the name Anathapindika was given to him, because it means the one who rescues the poor, the destitute. He was a student of the Buddha. He offered to the Buddha a beautiful park that he bought from a prince, Prince Jada. And that place served as a retreat center for the Buddha and many monks. One day, the Buddha learned that Anathapindika was nearing death. He appointed Venerable Shariputra to go and be near the layman Anathapindika to help him to die peacefully and joyfully. One day, Shariputra learned that the lay practitioner, Anathapindika, was about to die. He asked his younger brother in the Dharma, Ananda, to come with him to assist Anathapindika. When they arrived, Anathapindika was already very, very weak. 
he tried to sit up. But he couldn't sit up. Shariputra said, Dear friend, don't move. Just stay where you are. We can take a couple of chairs and sit and talk with you. When the monks were comfortably seated, Shariputra asked Anatta Bendika, how do you feel in your body? Is the pain decreasing or is it increasing? Anatta Bendika said, dear venerable, it doesn't seem that the pain is decreasing. It's increasing all the time. After having heard that, Shariputra said, in that case, we will practice together a guided meditation, and the object of this meditation will be the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Shariputra was a very intelligent monk. He knew that there are good seeds In Anattapindika, that's why for 30-some years, Anattapindika took so much pleasure in serving the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So he knew, Shariputra knew, that speaking of the three jewels would water the good seeds in that person. So some minutes later, Anattapindika could already smile. And the pain started to decrease. Shariputra continued with the guided meditation in the next part. Now, let us practice together, breathing this body contains air, this body contains earth. This body contains fire, heat. This body contains water. There is earth outside the body. There is water outside the body. There's fire or heat outside the body. And there's also water outside the body. This body is not me. I am much greater than this body. This body has not come from anywhere and it will not go anywhere. When conditions are sufficient, this body manifests and when the conditions are no longer sufficient, this body ceases its manifestation. I will not go anywhere. What I do continues me. And the meditation continued on no birth, no death, no coming and no going. And 
suddenly Venerable Ananda noticed there were tears in the eyes of Anathapendika. Ananda said, Dear friend, why are you crying? Is there something you regret? No, dear Venerable, I don't regret anything. Why are you crying? Has the meditation not been successful? No. Venerable Ananda, I have been able to do this meditation very well. So why are you crying? I'm crying because I'm so moved. I have served the Buddha and the Sangha for 30 years, but I have never received such a teaching and practice. I'm no longer afraid of anything. I'm, I'm liberated. Ananda said, Dear friend, you may not know this type of teaching. We monastics receive it practically every day. Anatta Pindika said, Dear Venerable Ananda, please, when you go back to the monastery, tell our Venerable Master there are lay people who may be too busy to practice and receive this teaching. But there are others, like myself. We are in a position to receive this kind of teaching and put it into practice. So please, please share this teaching with the lay friends, too. That was the last request of Anathapindika to the Buddha. Ananda said, yes, I will go back to the monastery and tell our teacher that lay friends can also receive this teaching on no birth and no death, no being and no non-being. After that, Anathapindika died very peacefully. This is a true story recorded in a sutra called Teachings to be Given to the Dying. And you can find it in the Plum Village Chanting Book, Chanting from the Heart. You can read it and study it. And if you practice well, you can also be a companion to people who are dying. You can help that person to die in a very peaceful way. Dear friends, we must stop now. We've had the good fortune to be together for a whole week to water the good seeds. So let's continue. Please try to build the Sangha. Please continue your study and practice. I would like to ask the monastics to come up to sing a song. I wish everyone a good continuation. See you next time. Monks and nuns, please come up.
Please give your legs a little massage and then we'll get up and we'll hold hands to sing a song. No coming, no going.